we've not had the privilege of meeting yet, my name is, pa is Bill Smith. It's not Pastor Bill. You can call me that, but my name is Bill Smith. And I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. We're continuing our Sunday morning teaching series in the book of Mark today. We're at the end of chapter 4. And just to catch us up where we've been, we've seen that Jesus is the king who's bringing the kingdom of God to this earth. Jesus is calling disciples to himself, and he's been explaining to them how the kingdom of God actually works. That it has a power all of its own that breaks into this world and that it transforms whatever it touches. Now, in today's passage, we have a shift in the book. He's just told us four different parables that allow us to hear what this kingdom is like. Now he's going to, Mark is going to show us four ways that this kingdom power is actually used. Four miracles that Jesus does. And when he does that, we're getting an inside glimpse into the heart and the character of this king who uses kingdom power. How God has come to this earth to liberate it from the power of darkness, how he values life, and how he uses his power to defeat death. These are examples that are going to show us God's gracious nature, but these examples also show us some things that are uncomfortable. Things about God that don't line up with our expectations of who he is. Let me see if I can give a little context here to unpack what I mean. Christian Smith is a sociologist of religion. He's now at the University of Notre Dame. Formerly, he was at UNC. And when he was at UNC, he did a study, produced a book on that study called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. It's a study of a large, about 3,000 people, nationally representative study of what spirituality looks like for modern American adolescents. Smith concluded that in the U.S., there is a common set of religious beliefs that have nothing to do with any one specific religion or faith. Rather, he discovered that there is a general American religion, not connected to any formal theology, but that is hold to be, held to be true across all of the religions. And he found a way to sum up this religious belief. It has several different core beliefs. One, that God wants you to be a good person who's good to other people. Two, that goodness that you're supposed to have is actually the key to you having a good life, which is what God wants for you. And then third, God basically stays out of your life, does not make any demands on you, stays out of your life unless you're in trouble, and then you can ask him to help you out. Smith captured this set of common religious beliefs with the words moralistic, therapeutic deism. Love that. It's a, a great set of words. Moralistic, therapeutic deism, by which he meant moralistic. God wants you to be a good person who's good to other people. That is the means by which you then ensure that you have a good life. Therapeutic, God wants you to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Deism, God leaves you alone. He's hands off in your life unless you have a problem, at which point he will step in to help you out. Moralistic therapeutic deism, very common among Americans. You've probably recognized some of those core beliefs among your friends, among your family as you talk with them. You may actually see some of them in yourself as well. Very common, widespread beliefs that run completely counter to who God is and to how he runs the world. Completely counter to the God that we find in Scripture. 
completely counter to what God tells us about himself, tells us about his own desires, tells us about how he lives his life. And yet these beliefs get imported into the church, which then ends up being really confusing to people who become Christians. Maybe you've had this experience. You've grown up in the church, around the church. You have some idea of who God is, either from your family or your church, but then you wander away from God in college Go your own way, do your own thing, and somewhere along the line, God gets hold of you, calls you to follow him, and you respond. You obey, and you figure, okay, you know what, it, it, it's time to clean up my act a little bit. Get things straight now, put myself back into a more healthy kind of life. And you do that and expect what? You expect life to be easier, Right? You're going to now be working with God, not against him. You're doing what he wants, and so you expect life to be easier, and what you will find is that life often gets harder, that your relationships become more tiring, that your parents have more demands of you rather than less, that your boyfriend leaves you for someone else, or you get downsized from your job, end up in an accident somewhere. God feels distance, you kinda, distant, and you kind of wonder where he went, Life feels now like it's a struggle, and you're not ready for that. Why? Because you've been taught a different religion in America. A different one than you expect, than you actually find in Christianity. This expectation that if you do good, life will turn out good, because that's what God wants for you, and so he'll work to make your life good. Today's passage is really helpful if you've built, bought into that belief system, because this passage directly challenges each one of those beliefs. We'll take them one at a time this morning. First, moralism. As Christian Smith and his colleagues interviewed people, they discovered that people have this belief, this moralist, that a moralistic approach to life teaches them that central to living a good and happy life is being a good moral person, unquote. Central to living a good and happy life is being a good moral person. And they learned there that your motivation for being good does not come from what? From the grace that God has given you. It doesn't come because you are overwhelmed with how much he's loved you and you just want to respond back to him with love. It doesn't come because you are so filled up with him that you can't be filled anymore and you're just longing for someone to have a little tiny taste of what that's like. It's not your motivation in this system. Instead, your motivation for being good is what? It's because you're looking for something. You're looking for some benefit to yourself. You want a good life. And you have this belief that God has promised that if you are good, he'll make your life good. And so you're motivated not out of love going outward. You're motivated out of enlightened self-interest. That you should be good, you should obey God, because that will in turn ensure that you have the life that you want. Now think with me. How's that worked out for the disciples so far? We've been watching them since chapter 1, and we've been seeing them since chapter 1 consistently obey Christ. He calls them to follow him. They drop everything that they're doing, and they follow him. They came to him. They've been with him. They are on the inside. They are listening to him. They're learning from him. They're seeking him out when they're confused. They even obey him in verse 35 here when he says, let us go to the other side. They have done everything right. Everything that he told them to do. 
and they find themselves in the middle of a storm that's about to kill them. If moralism is true, that the way to a good life is to be good, it's not working out real well for them. Let me take an aside just for a moment and talk about this storm. Apparently, violent storms on the Sea of Galilee are pretty common because of the topography of the area. Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level, and you have warm air that rises up off of this sea. And then just 30 miles to the north is Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is over 9,000 feet high, which means there is a two-mile gap between these two which, uh, with a huge temperature gradient. And as this warm air rises and cold air sinks, you wind up with these huge winds that just get funneled down onto the Sea of Galilee and cause these dangerous storms. These are storms that the disciples would have been familiar with since a number of them used to be fishermen on this sea before Jesus called them. And part of Jesus' calling has now led them right into the heart of one of these storms. A storm that is beyond them. One that they know they can't handle on their own. These experienced fishermen know that this storm is about to kill them and the only reason that they are there at that moment is because they did what God told them to do. They obeyed him. They did everything right. And they ended up in the middle of a life-threatening situation. Now what does that tell you? It tells you that God has a different goal for your life than giving you a happy, comfortable one. Jesus' primary mission is not to make you comfortable. That is not why he left his Father in heaven to come to earth. Instead, he came to bring the kingdom of God to this earth, to a world that had rebelled against him, a world that resisted his rule, that no longer worked the way that it was supposed to work, because now it's under the curse of God. And as a human being, Jesus would have to deal with the direct effects of that curse just like you and I do. And so not only would he experience Satan and people opposing him, but this physical world would also oppose him and threaten him in the same way that it opposes and threatens every single one of Adam and Eve's offspring. And that means that Jesus came knowing he was going to be resisted and opposed constantly in many ways throughout his entire lifetime. He obeyed his father perfectly at every step and was constantly harassed on this earth. Doing good, obeying God, will not give you an easy, comfortable life. If Jesus calls you to follow him, to be with him, he's not calling you into a comfortable life. He's calling you to join him in bringing the kingdom of God and to work with him to extend the kingdom of God, which means that he's calling you to face opposition, just like the disciples, and that by obeying him, by doing good, your life will not get easier. It'll get harder. And that should not surprise you. It does, some of us, but it shouldn't. Christianity never promises that if you're a good person, your life will work out the way that you always wanted it to. It's not what Christianity teaches. What is that? That's a different kind of faith. Say it this way, it's a different gospel. One where you save yourself, where you make your own life good. That's not what this account teaches. 
Now, the author of this book, Mark, to the best that we understand, was probably a disciple of Peter. And so Mark is doing what? He's recording accounts here that he would have heard Peter talk about. Like this one where the disciples learned, Peter learned, that following Jesus, obeying him, does not make life easier. Peter spells that truth out explicitly in one of the letters that he wrote. We call it First Peter. In chapter 4, he writes to fellow Christ followers, to disciples, and he writes to them, to us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange. When you face really hard trials, that's normal. It's part of the normal Christian life. It's normal to find yourself in the middle of life-threatening storms, to face things that you cannot handle, that you don't have the resources to deal with. If you're following Christ, it's normal to deal with relationships that hurt so bad you can feel it physically. It's normal to have pressures at work that are crushing you, robbing you of sleep, Tearing your stomach apart, causing you to shake. It's normal to have physical problems that can't be cured, that nearly kill you. Things that will take you to the edge of yourself and then further. Things that will make you cry out to God in desperation. Things that will make you feel like he just doesn't care about you. Those things are not strange. And Jesus will lead you into them as he extends his kingdom. It's not strange. It's normal. Don't be surprised when it happens. It doesn't mean you've done something wrong. It does not mean that God is punishing you. You may be doing everything right. You'll still face these kinds of trials. Here's actually where that can encourage you. If you've not done anything wrong and you're facing some kind of heat or some kind of storm in life simply because you're doing what you're supposed to. That gives you confidence that it is Jesus himself who's leading you into that. That there's a purpose for it, for you in that. That it's not random, it's not chaotic. That Jesus himself is doing something. That it's necessary for his kingdom. And be encouraged then. Because somehow it's advancing his kingdom in you, and in the lives of the people around you. The opposite, of course, however, is also true. If you only ever seem to have a comfortable life, one that never pushes you beyond your own resources, one that makes you cry out for help because you can't handle it on your own, if you don't have those kinds of experiences, you might want to ask if it's really Jesus who you're following. Jesus has come to challenge the forces of evil in all of their manifestations, to tackle them head on. So if you're following him, that means you're going to end up facing them as well. Doing the right thing will not lead you into an easy life. A moralistic approach to life is a lie. 
That's the first way this passage challenges our modern religiosity. Here's the second. Deism is also a lie. Deism is the theological belief that God is hands-off in his world, that he winds it up at some point and then just lets it go, that he does not intervene miraculously in it, but that having established natural laws and forces, he does what? He sits back and just watches them play out. Now, clearly, this account shows God being very active, intervening supernaturally in this world. But before we think about the implications of what he does, we first have to address the question, is this account trustworthy? Is it true? Or is it made up? See, if you're going to consider following Jesus, the Jesus that you see here, and if you're going to follow him into various storms and trials, things that are going to take you beyond what you can handle, you want to know that this is actually true. That this is what really happened. Not that it's some kind of cool mythological story that's just been made up, designed by a creative storyteller to communicate a good life lesson. You want to know that it's real. You don't want to risk coming to the end of your resources, crying out in desperation to a God who doesn't exist, someone who's just a figment of someone else's creative imagination. You want to know instead that this really happened or you want to know that it didn't. That this Jesus is worth following. Or that there's something better you could be doing right now other than just going through the motions of being religious. So how can you know? Is there anything in the passage that helps us? Let me draw your attention back to some of what we read earlier. Notice here, there are details that don't move the story along. Details that don't contribute to the overall point. Things that you hear once, and never hear again. Things like verse 36, that there were other boats with him. You read that and you think, what, what other boats? We haven't heard about other boats before. We don't hear about them ever again. We don't know where they went. We don't know what happened to them. They don't serve any purpose to the point of the story. They're a lot like the cushion in verse 38. Jesus was asleep on a cushion. You think, okay, <laughs> so what? Why is the cushion important? Why is that there? How does that advance the narrative? What spiritual point does that make? It doesn't. You can convey this entire story and leave the cushion, the other boats out, and nothing would change. So why are they there? These are what the biblical scholar Richard Balcom calls irrelevant details. And he notes in his work that they are a hallmark of an eyewitness. They are what you expect to find if someone is giving testimony. They are the hallmark of an eyewitness of someone who was actually on site that day, who saw the event and later told people about it. And as they recount the event, they talk about things that they actually saw, even if those details don't push the narrative along. Now today, fiction writers include these same kind of things. But that's a modern novelistic device. That kind of writing did not exist when the Gospels were written. Instead, ancient fiction, myths, legends, they only included details that either moved the story along or that figured into the point that the author was trying to make. So you didn't find these kinds of details in ancient fiction, stories that were made up. 
He did find them, however, in eyewitness accounts. Details that people saw or heard, not because they're trying to make a certain point, but because that's what they saw and heard. That's the way they remember that day. And remember the story go down. And so those details get included as they tell what happened. And when you come across these little details in Scripture, they tell you that what you're being offered is eyewitness testimony. Testimony from someone who was actually there and saw it unfold. Testimony of something that they saw, they saw and experienced and then recounted. That there really was a terrific storm. Gale-like winds. That Jesus, verse 39, really did command the wind, Peace! And say to the sea, be calm, be still. And when he did that, the wind really did cease, and there was a great calm on the sea. And that's what challenges our modern notion of God's being hands-off, uninvolved in his world. See, if you're trying to find a natural explanation for what happened, you're going to come up short. You could try to say that some kind of coincidence between Jesus speaking and the wind stopping. Some people have argued that. You know, like Jesus just got his timing right. Peace and the wind stopped, coincidentally. If something like that were to account for the wind stopping, it does not account for the waves. It doesn't explain why they also stopped. The Greek, Greek word there for calm means dead calm, like a tabletop calm. We would say like a sheet of glass. And you know from your own experience that that's not how waves work. Think back to last time you were in a bathtub or a swimming pool and somebody, something, you created a wave. What happens to that wave? It keeps rippling, doesn't it? Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It takes a really long time before the energy of the wave dissipates so that the level of the water is calm. It's not what happened that day on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus spoke and the sea immediately became like a sheet of glass. Now, can you imagine what that was like if you were there in the boat with him? What would happen if you went down the shore right now with a friend? Two of you stand on the sand at the edge of the waves, and your friend rebukes the sea and says, Be still. What would that be like if the Atlantic went completely flat in that moment? No more waves, no more foam, no more spray, no more roar, just instantly flat without a ripple. What would you think about your friend in that moment? You start to wonder, <laughs> what else don't I know about you? What else are you about to do? I don't think I want to be in the car with you on the way home. That's what the disciples are experiencing. That's why verse 41, they are more afraid now than they were before. They've now seen Jesus in a way that they could not before. No human being has power over nature like that. We have enough trouble telling a dog to sit when it's jumping all over the guests. We have enough trouble telling the dog to sit and actually having the dog sit. Jesus had no trouble at all. He told the sea to sit. And it did. Immediately. Now don't miss this. This is important. He always had that power. But it doesn't come out until what? Until he engages the storm that he's led the disciples into. 
The centerpiece of this story, then, is not the storm. The centerpiece is Jesus. He's the main event as he reveals more of himself to the disciples by how he deals with the storm that is so overwhelming to them. It's this thing that they don't want, this storm that he's led them into, that lets them see him with brand new eyes. To see that he's not merely human. That somehow the God who is outside and above the universe, who thought it all up out of his head, brought it all into being with the words of his mouth, holds it all in his hands, measures the water in the palm of his hands, somehow this beyond immense, outsized God has punched a hole in the universe and inserted himself. He's now inside, there in the boat with them. That's part of his purpose in bringing the storms into your life. He doesn't respond to your cries simply to make your life easier, more comfortable. But he engages these overwhelming struggles, these storms, in such a way to show you something of himself, something that you could not see in any other way. You can trust him to do that. Frankly, however, seeing him in these new ways is not always comforting. A moment ago, verse 40, the disciples were afraid. Afraid for their lives. They were scared to death of the storm. But now, verse 41, after the storm has gone, they're more scared. Filled with great fear. They're starting to realize there's something about Jesus that they don't get. The storm, they understand. The storm master, they don't. The storm was enough to scare them to death. But if they died, it'd be over. There's no more storm. Now they've come face to face with someone who scares them more. Someone who's greater than the storm. Someone that they will have to face again after they die. Get this. They are less afraid of death than they are of the possibility that God is there with them in the boat. The above and outside everything God is right next to them. Human beings are a little silly, myself included. We talk very lightly about meeting God, about inviting his presence among us. We talk lightly about spirituality and of having spiritual experiences because we have no idea what that means. For those who have met God, who have had a real experience with him, it's no joke. Isaiah says in chapter 6 of his book that it's literally like coming apart, being undone. Jesus' friend John faints in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation when he sees Jesus in his glory. The disciples now know firsthand that there's a wildness to God that's beyond the worst hurricane you can imagine, beyond the worst tornado, worst hailstorm that you've ever been in the middle of. Some of you have a recent experience of that. You were in the middle of wind and hail this last week. Some of you have shared your stories with me uh, of how terrifying that was for you. Coming face to face with God is far more terrifying. Now here's kindness in this passage. God knows that. 
He knows that we can't handle a full revelation of himself. And so he came to this earth how? Veiled, as the hymn puts it, veiled in flesh. He wrapped up his immense glory in a human body so that he could come close to us without freaking us out. But here's his passion. He came because he wants to be known by us. To bring us into an experience of who he is. To reveal himself to us. And one of the ways that he does that is by involving himself directly in the storms and the trials that you experience. Not simply to help you. He does that. But also to make himself known to you. So next time that you are overwhelmed by life and by what you're facing, ask God to help do that. But ask him even more to reveal himself to you in a way that you haven't yet experienced. Don't let that storm go to waste. See the God who is the storm tamer. So first, a moralistic approach to life is a lie. Second, a belief that God is hands-off in this world is a lie. Here's the third challenge that our passage poses to our modern religiosity, to the notion of the therapeutic. That God's goal is for you is that you would feel happy and that you would feel good about yourself. I need to pause here. Please hear me. <laughs> this belief is so entrenched in our world, so entrenched in our worldviews, the belief that God wants us to be happy, that to say anything else almost sounds like you're saying God does not want you to be happy. God wants you to be miserable. God wants you to be upset. I'm not saying that. Scripture does not say that. I am saying that your happiness is not God's highest goal for you because something else is. And because something else is, he will do things and say things that don't make you feel happy and don't make you feel good about yourself. Think about it this way. Back in the passage, verse 38, the disciples are upset with Jesus. They wake him up and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? The waves, verse 37, are breaking into the boat. It's taking on water faster than they can bail it out. The storm is not abating. They know how bad it is, and they know that there is nothing they can do to keep themselves from sinking. And there's Jesus, sleeping. Now, just as an aside, that gives you an indication of how much he is pouring himself out for humanity's sake. If you can sleep through a storm that terrifies experienced sailors... <laughs> You're beyond exhausted. They wake him up. He settles the storm. And then he turns to them. These guys who are now experiencing whole new levels of fear that they didn't know existed. And he does what? He rebukes them. He doesn't look at them and say, guys, I get it. You're scared. And so you didn't know what you were saying. You thought I didn't care, that you didn't matter to me, that I was going to let something bad happen to you. That was your experience. That's perfectly understandable. He doesn't say that. Please hear this. This is really important this morning. He does not do what our age wants him to do. He does not do what our age insists that he do. He doesn't validate them. 
he doesn't validate their experience. He doesn't say, I get it. That makes sense. I can see how you would respond that way. He doesn't say that. He rebukes them. He says essentially, why are you acting like this? Verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? What's wrong with you? <laughs> you should have known better. Your starting premise about me, that I don't care about you, your starting premise is wrong. And no, I don't consider what you're saying to be a valid perspective. It'd be dishonest of me to say that it might be, to let you believe that it might be. Now, why does he do that? Why isn't he sympathetic, empathetic to how they're feeling? I am. That had to be overwhelming for them. Would you feel yourself somewhat sympathetic toward them? You'd be sympathetic, right? They were near death. Why not cut them just a little bit of slack and acknowledge, wow, yeah, that, got, that was rough. I can sort of see why you'd respond that way. He doesn't do that. Why? Because to validate their experience, their perspective would be to validate a lie. To give credence to something that is not true. To say to them, it's okay. Under those circumstances, you should think that I don't care. That's reasonable. If he says something like that to them, it's going to cut right at the heart of the, his relationship with them. And so he says to them, what you're thinking about me is not true. It wasn't true during the storm. It's not true now. It will never be true under any circumstances. Now, do you see how in that moment, his number one goal is not that they enjoy their lives and think well of themselves. Do you see how he's willing to press them to put their present happiness to the side and to rebuke them? Why does he do that? Because he has their eternal happiness in view. He wants them to know that having bound himself to them, that nothing, absolutely nothing, will ever get in the way of his love for them. Even if from the outside it looks like he's taking a break. And so he won't let them get away with believing a lie. He expected them to take him seriously when he said, verse 35, let us go to the other side. He thought that what they had already seen of him, already heard from him, was enough. Enough for them to have faith, even though the ship was starting to sink. Faith to believe that they were going to get to the other side. He thought they should have faith in him, even when their life was anything but happy. Now, clearly, this is not an American gospel. So here's my question for us this morning. Why? Why would you want this Jesus... He's not comfortable to be around. <laughs> he leads you into things you don't want to experience to help you see things about himself that will overwhelm you even more. He is not a nice enhancement to your life. Not an interesting, provocative teacher that's going to stimulate your mind, entertain you. He's the God who made the elements of the storm that you will face. Why would you want 
him. It's because he does care. He cares desperately for you. Far more than you'll ever know. Just like he cared far more for the disciples than they knew that day. And because he cares, you can trust him that he'll lead you, that whatever he leads you into is absolutely necessary for you as he brings his kingdom into your life. Now, how do you see this care in this passage? Think about it. Where is Jesus while this storm is raging all around them? He's with them. He's there in the boat. He went with them into the storm. He did not leave them to face it alone. What is that? That's care. That's love. Their idea that he doesn't care misses the point. He's there with them, experiencing what they experience because he cares. If he didn't care, he wouldn't be with them. But I think we can press it a little bit further. Why is he there in the boat? It's because first, he's there in the world. Why didn't he stay above and outside of the universe? Why is he on the planet? It's because he's bringing the kingdom of God to this world to rescue them and us from the evil and the darkness of this world. Why? Because he cares that we're trapped by the evil and the darkness. But why is he there in a body? He could bring the kingdom without a body, without having to face all the things that you and I do. Exhaustion after a long, hard day. Danger from natural disasters. <laughs> Nastiness from people who assume you don't care about them. Why did he come in a body? Put himself through all of that. Put up with all of that. It's because he came to do something that he needed a body for. Something that only a body could do. Something that this passage actually foreshadows because it's packed full of reminders. Reminders of an earlier account that you find back in the book of Jonah. Maybe you noticed the parallels between the two accounts. We studied Jonah this past fall. Do you see how similar the two accounts are? Both Jonah the prophet and Jesus the teacher get into a boat. Both fall soundly asleep. A violent windstorm whips up suddenly and threatens to sink both ships. The experienced sailors of each boat are terrified. They both, they all wake up the sleeper and they tell the sleeper essentially, do something because we're all going to die. In each case, there's divine intervention such that afterward the sea goes completely calm. And at that bo point, both sets of sailors are more terrified than they were before. A lot of parallels between the two accounts. One difference. Jonah was running away from the mission that God gave him. He ran away from saving people. He ran away so that people would die. Jesus ran in the opposite direction. He ran to people to keep people from dying. He ran to save people. He plunged himself into this world to rescue people despite all of the suffering that he would have to endure. He did that because he cares. He cares enough to make his life miserable in order to rescue you and me. 
But why is he there in a body? It's because he came to make the same trade that Jonah made. Because there's something Jesus could do with a body that he could not do without one. He could die. The turning point in Jonah's story is when he tells the sailors to throw him into the storm, to trade his life for theirs. Jesus is the better Jonah. Jonah's forced into his sacrifice. There is no other choice. And he makes other people do the dirty work. He makes them throw him in. Jesus, on the other hand, chose to sacrifice himself. To throw himself in. He came into this world and he said, I will make Jonah's trade. I will die so that you will live. I will throw myself into the storm, the coming storm of God's wrath, my own wrath as God against all the rebellion and opposition of this earth, against your lack of faith. I will throw myself into that storm that comes from me, my wrath against your sin, and I will die so that you can live, so that there will be absolute peace and calm between you and me between you and God, between you and the rest of God's people, between you and the rest of God's universe. How much does Jesus care? Enough to voluntarily come to this earth in a body, to suffer throughout his entire life so that he could suffer more and die. Because there was no other way for you to be saved from the coming storm of God's wrath that is going to purify all the evil out of this world. You can be certain then that whatever Jesus leads you into will be far less than what he willingly walked into for you. And you can be certain, just as certain, that if it was necessary for him to do what he did, it is just as necessary for you to do what he leads you into doing. Don't be surprised when he leads you into hard things. Don't accuse him of not caring for you. Instead, expect him to bring the power of the kingdom into your struggles. Ask him to do that. And ask him to reveal himself to you as he does that. Lord Jesus, thank you that you did not leave us to ourselves that you did not abandon us to a world of meaningless struggles. Thank you, Lord, that you blazed the trail, that you came first, that you went through harder trials, harder struggles than we'll ever imagine, and that you did that not for your sake, not because you needed to, but because that's what we needed from you. Thank you that you've done that. Lord, set us free not to be motivated by trying to get some benefit out of this world, but to recognize the benefit you've already given us and to live out of the abundance of that life. In Jesus' name, amen. Please rise as we close in time, just responding to our Lord.